ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo Say what you feel, be real That's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals All right, here, Dr. D's Social Network Podcast, here with one Miss Lorraine. Lorraine, beautiful to see you. Beautiful to see you too, Darian. You have like a great presence. Like before I pressed the button, I was like, man, just such a nice person. I feel this presence of niceness, you know, like. Thank you. I felt that too about you. Oh, that's great. great. So I want to talk about the early you starting out here. And kind of your rise through the ranks of work, and I know you work do some conflict resolution, conflict work, work conflict. But let's I let's do, do the rewind machine and go backwards. Where does okay. this career begin for Lorraine? Well, the career actually begins uh, when I had a different career. I was a tenured professor at a community college mm. and teaching English as a second language. And loved my students, loved teaching, and always taught them things like it's okay to make mistakes and how to be a good global local citizen, as well as English. Um, And um, I was so happy to be tenured and to be a full professor and all of that. And unfortunately, um, like many, too many academic settings, it was extremely toxic. Um, just a toxic workplace. And I was bullied and mobbed there. Wow. And ended up with PTSD. It was not my students ever. But there's a there's a fear of change and a fear of excellence, unfortunately, at schools, which really startled me. We gotta talk about this. This is like a big thing. And you know, I was in academia for a long time too. Oh, and early wow. and I and I this this bothers me. Like this, this, and I think this needs to be exposed. Like, so let's dive deeper into that. Sorry to cut you off, but I think this is important. I think this is something because I think there's kind of a smoke and mirrors thing going on with this, you know? Yes, I agree. Well, you know, when I um, got my master's in teaching, first I was a freeway flyer, as we call it, you know, <laughs> running around to a million different colleges in the Bay Area. Um, And it was was exploitative in a lot of ways because we were underpaid and we weren't paid for all the time we put into correcting papers and meeting with students. But I didn't realize at the time that the benefit was you got to slide by a lot of the politics. And I'm sure many of those schools were dysfunctional too, but I never had to deal with it. Mm. And then when I was a um, you know, tenure track professor, I was running a department and oh my goodness, the, the shocks from the very beginning. And, and it got a lot worse later when I didn't have a good division chairs shielding me from some of the, the bleak. <laughs> <laughs> you said resistance to change. Can you talk about that? I think it's an important topic to discuss. Yeah, you know, I always had this illusion that colleges and universities were bastions of free thinking (laughs) and curiosity and embracing new ideas. And uh, (laughs) what I discovered, it was not like that. There were certain individuals like that. But um, 
there was a feeling that anything that changed was going to be bad. And some of them, some of it had to do with privilege, you know, the mediocre white men syndrome, that Mm. anything that changed or gave more opportunities to women and people of color and lesbians and um, people from different backgrounds was somehow going to take away from their automatic paths. Mm. And I think that that was part of the, and there, and there were women who were part of that. I called them the icy blonde coterie <laughs> at my school. And um, it was, it wasn't until I'd experienced a lot of the bad effects and I actually started doing forgiveness work, you know, praying for them because yeah. I was so angry. I felt like it would destroy me if I didn't mm. deal yes. with it inside. And after I prayed for a long list of people for years, you know, as as well as praying, get me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) But as one of the side benefits I got from praying for them was I found some compassion at a distance. It wasn't that I thought what they did was right. right. But I realized that someone like me who was a change agent, who was super competent and creative and different and was pushing for the organization to follow their mission statement about diversity and everything yes. else yes. was felt like a threat to their survival. Like they were going to be annihilated if I won. Um, <laughs> and so they felt justified in doing anything to stop me because they felt like their survivals were at stake. Yeah. Um, so this leads me to the the concept of tenure. <laughs> All right, so I think this should be talked about. I mean, you were tenure, but is it and is it a still is it still a thing to do? You think should we still have tenure, or is it just an old idea? Well, personally, I think that tenure is a good idea. Okay, because if you um, if you are trying to truly educate people and help them think and feel and be full citizens of the world. Um, the people who don't like that have a much harder time getting rid of you if you have tenure. Yeah. And so I do think it's it's powerful and helpful. However, in my case, it just meant they couldn't get rid of me. It didn't mean they weren't trying to dis- very easily. Yeah. It didn't mean they weren't trying to destroy me. So in, for me personally, it made it very hard to walk away. I mean, that's the, the golden reward for all the years of being a freeway flyer and an adjunct and everything and you know having summers off and benefits it sounds so wonderful job (laughs) security i mean who has that you know it's amazing but it definitely wasn't enough to keep me safe yeah no it, it makes a lot of sense it feels like there's sometimes things traditions that last that it's i think it's good to question to go okay we should revisit things at least and say, it does this still stand in today's society yeah. and things of that nature. And I think college, and, and we'll move on to other stuff, obviously, but like, what do you see in terms of the value of college at this point for people working there and the people who are the consumers, the students, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's awful how much it costs oh, to go to college. Terrible. Um, I do think that call it a liberal arts education or something that exposes you to a whole bunch of right. ideas right. is valuable for your whole life, no matter what you I do. Agree. And um, some of the kinds of training you can get in engineering and math and everything are incredibly value, 
helpful. However, I think that it's really important that there be alternatives. I mean, there's really people who can be highly skilled through what are called vocational mm-hmm. training programs, do very important work. Um, and I think that needs to be valued equally. I, I think so. I worked in both environments, kind of your traditional four-year institution, five-year and uh, vocational schools. And what was interesting I found was when I was in the kind of your traditional thing, it was a lot of theory and people, professors who actually didn't really work in the field on the ground level in the subject they were teaching, but taught a lot of theory about being in practice. And then in vocational schools, people who work in the environment, but don't necessarily have a huge amount of academic background in what they're doing. And I wish it was like a better mixture of those things, you know, not a huge, so much emphasis on research, which is not, which is good, but not to the detriment where like students are not actually getting taught by those. They're just the teachers. I'm doing research. I, you know, here's the TA, you know, you, you know, a lot of professors at four-year colleges, see my, my program, I have a master's in teaching. Right. English is a second language. So at least gave me a foundation of thinking about how do you really, how do people learn? Right. How do you teach them? And if there's one thing I know, and the research bears this out, is the more you can connect the theory and the concepts to real life and actual situations, the more people learn. And I always tried to do that in my classes. And now I teach conflict management. I created a program for working professionals at Sonoma State University. And it's always very, you know, introspective discussing how does this apply to your work? Because I know that's how people learn and really take in the theory and the the basic ideas. Most definitely. So after this long journey in in academia, what happened? (laughs) What was the transition? Like, where do we go from here? Well, it's actually, now I can laugh at this, but there was a particular moment at the college where I was forced to take part in a so-called mediation that was actually an attack Lorraine meeting where Mm. everyone jumped at me and told me everything I was doing wrong and how awful I was. It was just, it was just devastating. Mm. But it also, I thought, this can't be what a mediation is. This can't be how sane people resolve conflict. <laughs> and actually, and I was also praying, you know, show me a path out of here, get me out of here. And I uh, found out about a conflict management certificate program. So while I was still full time at the school, I took one class, absolutely fell in love with the field, took the whole certificate program. My brain was like exploding with all the new ideas and how it fit in with things that I'd already been doing and started planning to get the bleep out of there. (laughs) Um, And um, because of all my teaching experience and because I taught my students so many things besides English, the program I was in offered, they were, they had some teachers retiring and they hired me to teach conflict management, which was, oh my God, I didn't have to disguise my teaching as grammar or writing or reading anymore. I could really teach the things that I love to teach. So I started, you know, teaching there. I had a a very solid practical plan to slowly get myself out of the college. 
and it fell apart. They wouldn't, they were supposed to let me, you know, cut down to part-time, but I knew they were going to screw me. I could tell. Yeah, yeah. So I just left with this baby business that I didn't know anything about how to run and one class at Sonoma State. <laughs> wow. You took, you took the leap. I did. And I did have, I was old enough and they had a program they don't even have now where you could take an early retirement and still get some money. Yeah. So I knew I would have some income, which really, really helped. But it was, I think walking away from tenure was the hardest thing I ever did. Um, even though wow. after I left, I thought, my God, how did I stay there so long with all the <laughs> psychic assaults? And I, I mean, I was really, I was lucky that I didn't get a debilitating illness or never be able to work again. It was that intense, uh, wow. even though I tried to take care of myself while I was there. Do you think you would have ever ended up in working in work conflict without that conflict? You know, I don't know. And I actually, one of the things that that question gets me to do is I have to be grateful for everything that happened at the college right I mean it was awful and I don't wish it on anyone but I think if that horribleness hadn't happened I might have just stayed I mean I had summers off I loved my students and it wouldn't have been a tragedy but it would have been really sad because I my soul is supposed to do this conflict management yeah. work and so I'm so grateful for the way things unfolded. It was a much bigger plan than I could see. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the whole thing. It's, I mean, it sounds like your soul was just beating, getting eaten. <laughs> this place. It was. It just was. withering my away. Poor, <laughs> my poor inner child. She was, yeah. you know, I was in, I was doing therapy. I was getting, um, e I was doing EMDR work for rapid wow. you know, uh, to, to yeah. try to keep me sane. I was praying. I was, I was yeah. doing all this stuff, and my inner child couldn't bear it, and and she was so mad at me for making her <laughs> go back there day after day. And the only thing she asked me that I could do, she she asked me to wear pink, oh, and okay. I wore pink every day for my last year there. <laughs> wow, that's a commitment. <laughs> Yes. And That's sometimes I negotiated with her, well, this scarf has pink in it. Is that yeah, enough? <laughs> yeah. Wow. You were yeah. really going through it. Like you, oh my God. but you know, it like was... that's what people do though. Like they stay in terrible situations, you know, like yes. it happens so often. And I'm sure maybe you're seeing this in your work, maybe on some level. So how do you oh. grapple with that with other people dealing with it? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, because I, I, I write a blog at conflictremedy.com. I've written over 140 blog posts at this point. Nice. And one of the topics I do write about is bullying and mobbing. And I wrote this one blog post in 2010 called The Injury of Mobbing in the Workplace. And mm. I still get clients from it. And I actually never really wanted that much to work with people who were being bullied and mobbed because at first it triggered me all over mm. the place. Um, but I felt compelled to write about it and teach about it because it's not as it's not known. It's getting better, but it's not known as well as it needs to be of what happens to people. And oh my goodness, the stories my clients have told me. It's I wrote another blog post called "The Craziness of Mobbing in the Workplace," mm. and if I didn't know my clients weren't lying and had experienced some of the things myself. I, I would think they were making it up because it sounds so extreme and bizarre. 
And actually, I, I know I told you I've written a memoir now about my life. And one of the chapters, it's I try to find some humor in all these things. It's called College of Darkness. <laughs> the Gothic part. College of Darkness. And it was the last piece I wrote, not the last thing that's in the memoir. And I just cried and shook through the whole first yeah. draft of it. And then after I'd finished it, the very first thing I thought was, I can't publish this. No one will believe me. It sounds too crazy. Mm. And um, but it happened to me, and I and and so many wonderful clients who, some of them people of color or immigrant yeah. women or white women or lesbians yeah. uh, or gay men. Those are the ones I've worked with, who wanted to do a good job, who were brilliant and competent and amazing. And people would feel threatened by them, or women in the trades yeah. I've worked with also. And they just, the stuff that happened to them, and and it's it's very hard to deal with. And one of the reasons I don't really like doing that work as much, although I'll always tell people if they come to me, is there's so few happy endings. Oh, um, yeah. And, um, you know, in my college, uh, the one that, not mine anymore, thank goodness. But, um, <laughs> I've gotten several phone calls. There'd be people who remembered me and they would tell someone who was going through what I was going through to call me. And I'd always listen and validate what was going on and, I, and they would talk about suing. But I know people who sued that college and won, but oh. it didn't change anything yeah. because they cloned themselves in terms of the faculty and the administrators. They were so resistant to change more than even most schools. And I always told them the best revenge is to get out and create a good life for yourself. I mean, that's great advice. I think that's really great advice. I think the larger question is, how common is workplace conflict? Do we have numbers for this, statistics, ideas? I'd love to know. I mean, I, I used to run a club for a very long time, a fitness club over a decade, and uh, I was lucky I was in charge and I was able to create a very warm, loving environment. So it's kind of in a bubble, but I wonder on a larger scale, how common is this? Well, it's everywhere. Um, what I like to say, you know, when I teach some of my introductory workshops and, and classes, one of the first things I say to people is conflict is normal. When there's groups of people, they gossip. They like to eat together <laughs> yeah. and there's conflict. Yeah. So the key isn't, is there conflict? It's how do you navigate conflict? How do you deal with it? And it's why I love teaching and coaching so much more than mediating, which I don't do much anymore. Yeah. Because I, I, what I want to do is give people the skills to navigate conflict. You know, I, I, call, I, I like to use uh, graphics in my um presentations for the slides and I have one that shows um, firefighters putting out <laughs> a big fire and I say I get called into organizations to put out these big conflagrations and I'm good at it but I'd much rather help people get the tools they need so they don't end up with this huge split you know rage of yeah. resentments and that they don't ever have to go to that place Right. No, I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you're aware of like that people, I don't know if you're paying attention to it. It seems like a lot of people are quitting their jobs. 
all across yes. the United. So what do you make of this? Is this like a kickback to the toxic workplace culture? People have had enough. Maybe it's related to the pandemic. What do you, what do you make of this? Well, I, you know, I'm not an expert in this. I can only say from my observations, but I think it's a combination. I think, uh, you know, there's the U.S. in particular has a culture of you're supposed to work all the time. You're not supposed to take time off. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> sacrifice everything for your job because that's what makes you successful. And I think having to be home made more people realize that wasn't true. Yeah. And that they needed more boundaries and needed more balance. And if their bosses that didn't accept that concept of work-life balance and we're humans first and we need peace and love as well as work, um, then I think people have left um, yeah. because of that. And I do think so many people leave because of unresolved conflicts that no one knows how to deal with that just keep getting worse or because they're being bullied and mobbed and no one is sticking up for them and, or addressing it or recognizing what's going on. So I can see how being away from a toxic workplace would help people realize that they just don't want to be there anymore. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I think people are less willing to deal with mediocrity in a job or conf like really poor work environments, whereas like, uh, like my parents' generation, my grandparents, like, you know, there was a pension. There was something at the end that said, hey, even if it's terrible, you're going to come out on the end with money. You're going to be fine. You can retire. Yes. Obviously, a lot of that went, all of that went away, most of it. But I feel like a lot of people now, like, yes. even if the monetary aspect is a thing, they're always like, so what? Like, I'll just quit anyways. I'll figure it out. I think that scares yeah. employers because they don't have the leverage anymore. Because the leverage was you make a lot of money here. And the younger people, especially, are like, and you better treat me right. <laughs> you know, like. Yes. And actually, I think this is a really good thing because it's me forcing too. organizations to look at it. how do I treat people with respect? How do I give feedback and help people improve rather than just judging them? Yeah. Um, how do I truly not just hire diverse people, but have diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. How do we promote that? So, you know, people are, who might just want to brush that off can't. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so that's the good part of it. Of course, there's still people, you know, frontline workers, yes. etc., who don't have that luxury. Um, sure. And they still deserve more respect and more money and better treatment than they're getting. It's a different issue. Now you mentioned about, let's say, especially people in academia, this kind of like, hey, we're threatening my lifestyle or my the way things have always been. Is this because of fear in their mind, you think? What, what, have, how, what have your thoughts about this diving deeper into that? Absolutely. Well, there's a book, oh, I wish I'd looked up her name, um, but oh, oh, this, well, she wrote a book, let's talk about, um, Let's talk about race. And then she wrote a second book and the subtitle, it's about mediocre white men, the, <laughs> so the phenomena. Funny. And um, I think that, and, I, and I've heard this from other people that um, white men have gotten, in, not all white men, but some white men have, who are mediocre have gotten unearned privilege. Mm. And I certainly noticed this myself in my job 
um, that I had to work twice as hard as the men to get any recognition or respect. Even though I was being paid the same because that was mandated, there were yeah. people there still, and this wasn't that long ago, who thought that a woman should not be a leader, shouldn't be in charge, particularly if she it's was crazy. super competent and outspoken and not deferential. And I have not been like, oh, you're all my man, I will bow down to you and yeah. not say what I think if you're full of, you know, BS. Yeah. And um, so I think that for people who've gotten a pass, their whole life, they've skated along, just, you know, they do one little thing right, and everybody's like, oh, oh, whereas women are doing all these things right, or people <laughs> of color are doing all these sure. things right, women of color, men of color. Um, uh, and and it's like oh okay, um, I think that they're terrified. They there's some part of them that knows they might not make it to the top yeah. if it's a really level playing field. Mm. Well, that that was a mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a kind of a a microcosm for our society. Whereas you know, for a very long time in the United States, there's been a large suppression of women people of color, obviously people of different genders and identities, and there's a shift happening. And the people who have always have been in the leadership roles or have been in power, to me, it's like all of a sudden you start seeing something slipping away, kind of, and you're, you're yes. creating the narrative and the narrative is starting to be written by other people and changing. People do this all the time. They start digging in and have really crazy points of view once they're, what they're threatened. They feel threatened. Yes, you're so right. And sadly, many women, uh, particularly white women, have bought into this narrative as well. That's wow. crazy. You know, <laughs> I know. It, it is. But they really think, oh, he's so amazing because he's a man. I've experienced this so many times, yeah. you know, for myself and others. It's They, they don't um it it's brainwashing really yeah you, you know people grow up that way and 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 think that and we all have shadow spots you know sure, ways that we make assumptions about people that we don't even recognize i'm humbled every day realizing things i don't know and unconscious prejudices i have yes i do my best to bust them and then teach other people what i learned you know what's interesting? Uh, I've talked to a lot of people in academia on this show. And, and one of the things I tell scientists, especially, I'm like, you know, one of the problems with academics is like, you spend all your time in academia, like you got a science communication problem. You need to actually get out there and be among people and not be in the ivory tower all the time. And just doing research and being around just your colleagues, like people don't identify with you. Yes. That's a big problem. And that's with anybody who is in some version of a silo in their yes. life. You know, like it's one of the reasons I love doing the show. I talk to literally all types of people. It's hard for me to have weird ideas when I'm talking to so many different people <laughs> who have so who are teaching me uh, so many different things about different yes. aspects of life. And if you're not doing that, it's really you're closing your mind to the world. You're just you're stunting right. your development, you know. Well, and one of the things about science that I think even the people I, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I have tremendous respect for and all these folks, right. is that from the study, from things that I've learned and studied, is that facts don't convince people. It's folks true, actually. Honor, 
facts and the truth. <laughs> just explain it well enough. People will get it. But oh. most people make decisions. It's, it's emotional. It's emotional. So it's, can you tell them a story about it? Can you make it real? Can you make them want to be part of something? Yep. And you can try from now until sundown to convince <laughs> people using facts, and it will not work because it's not the nature of <laughs> neurobiology and how, how we change. We're storytellers. We sit around, we talk to each other, hopefully, oh, maybe not as much now, but you know, we're, but we need that when it's hard, like if you get around someone and maybe you disagree with, but then you like see them and you feel their goodness, it's hard to be mean. And you're oh like, oh goodness. man, maybe I should rethink this, you know? There's a commercial um, that I saw years ago and they recently, someone posted on Facebook and it's a Heineken ad. Yeah. Um, and um, it they recorded these people who like someone who was an ardent feminist and someone who thought woman's place was in the home and someone who was soldier anti-trans people thought yeah. they were, you know, and a trans woman. And then they showed us that, but they didn't tell them that. Instead, they put them together and they had to build a, a bar right? <laughs> so they built a bar, you wow. know, literally constructing it together. Then they showed the people their videos. And then they had a choice to sit down and drink a beer and talk or not. And it was amazing because the, the soldier who hated trans people and the trans woman, they had both been soldiers. Actually. Yeah, wow. And they bonded so beautifully. And it's a perfect example of what you were just talking about, Darian, of when you get to know when you when you build something together or you're you get to know your neighbor or you really talk to people you can't just assume they're a certain way you can't just reject them as the enemy in the same way and i write about this a lot about you know who's an enemy and how can we interesting turn them into friends so i like that who is an enemy can you expand further on that i'd like to hear more about that like well, do we feel like we do this a lot. We make people enemies without ever meeting them on it. Yes. I've actually written about this quite a bit. I wrote one blog post called The Flags and Flowers of the Enemy, which mm. was about neighbors that I saw flying, you know, like aggressive American flags yeah. in a way that made me think they were very right wing. And yet they yeah. had these beautiful gardens. So how could I hate them when they had created this yeah. beauty in their front yard? Or um, there's a wonderful TED talk. I can't remember the name of the woman, but she's a legislator in uh, some Northern European country. And she did a TED talk called Why I Have Coffee with People Who Send Me Hate Mail. I love that. And um, there's another woman who was in the, um, uh, oh God, what's his name? The, the minister who, um, you know, would, would um, picket gay funerals. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, she, she wrote, I wrote a blog post on her called Civil Conversations with the Enemy. Yeah. And it's all about if you can sit down and talk to people and see that they're multifaceted, that they're humans yep. who want to be loved, who want to feel safe, who want to have meaning and purpose in their lives. It's a lot harder to just, you know, write them off. Yeah. When you see people as just like objects instead of humans. Uh, Daryl Davis, he, he's done great work in this, where he goes basically into bars and different 
places, kind of rough areas, but, but are populated by people who are like associated with like uh, K- the KKK, Aryan, wow. Nazis. And I guess he's like turned like over 200 plus people from those organizations. Wow. And all he does is he goes in there and he just has a, he has a beer with them. He chats with them. They listen to jazz and, you know, initially they're aggressive with him. And, but he just keeps talking to him and he's, he's like, it's amazing to watch them come back to the bar to meet with him. And they go, I had to give up this outfit and everything. I just, I can't, I'm talking to you and I can't believe that I think this way. You know, yeah. it's, it's just like the power of meeting people. Oh, that's it's, beautiful. Well, please, you know? after we get off the podcast, please sh- share his name with me. Yeah, so I can, it's really I can amazing, it actually. It yeah, is. it's like just the power of like, going in and say, I'm just going to, I know it may feel rough in the beginning because people are going to judge me for how I look, yes. but like, if I just stay with it, if I'm nice and I just yes. have, you know, it's, it's <laughs> hard to kill kindness, man. Once you exhibit it to people, it's because it changes people inside. It like, does. how can you be this nice? <laughs> you know, yes. like, well, you know, uh, one of the things I have a little section in my memoir that's called um, the poster couple, the lesbian poster couple. Mm-hmm. This was a long time ago where there was a political campaign and we were trying to get the right to marry, which yeah. we now have. Right. So my um, my wife and I did talks. I, you know, I called it the poster. Here we are, the happy, yeah. healthy lesbian couple in love. Right. And we just want to get married like everyone else. And, um, and some people were hostile mm. and a lot were supportive. And, um, but they couldn't think about it the same way after they met us. Um, so that's, you know, it's, and I've had that, um, I've had that experience as a lesbian many times. And also yeah. as a Jew, there's still, you know, when I was growing up, there were people right. who thought Jews had horns and tails and um, were at, had killed JC and um, they were the enemy. And um, it's, it's crazy. It, it is crazy, but you know, and it, it doesn't survive true contact. <laughs> no, for the for the most part. And you know, one other thing I wanted to say about this: when I redid my website some years ago now, but here I was, you know, mostly reaching, wanting to reach out to corporations and nonprofits and be very professional. And I knew I wanted to talk about love because part of my approach to conflict management is about love yeah and i was so scared to do it i thought people would laugh at me or whatever and finally i gave myself a good talking to and said look if you don't say who you really are you're not going to attract the people who want what you really are offering right so i took a deep breath and talked about love and spirit and inner child (laughs) i mean all kinds of things love is amazing i mean it's uh, probably one of the greatest things about being alive it is. And it's, it's, it was interesting. I had someone, I've had a few pastors on and, and then we talked about, I want to talk about like, Hey, dwindling membership of churches and kind of this antithetical aspect of like, listen, it's supposed to be about love God, love others, not judging people on their sexuality and all these other things that what's the, it's about loving people. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I, I like to call people to that because I'm like, listen, it's, it's really simple. If you think about it, if you're nice, you care and you love about love people, your life is going to impact. You're going to have a pretty nice life because people aren't going to always feel like you're after them. 
or that you're presenting some version of hostility towards them all the time. Like if you're just nicer, like just be a nice person. And it's not that hard. <laughs> like, yes. Think in your environment, you were in college. If everybody would have just been nice, you would have never left. You would have been fine, you know? Yes. Well, my mind's going in a million different directions from what you said. But one thing that I teach and work on with my clients is forgiveness and letting mm -hmm. go of grudges because when people are holding grudges they can't resolve the conflict and most of it is inner work of yes. understanding that there are malicious people of course of but course. most people aren't they're just doodling along their own story <laughs> about true. what happened and living their lives and not even realizing the impact you have they have on you so I do a lot of work with, you know, looking at where the emotional triggers were and someone triggers you, where those come from and how can you let go of the grudge and meet this person now? And um, it's very powerful work and it's deeply connected to love. Most definitely. So tell me, I think this would be good for our audience, people who may be struggling with another person, having maybe regular conflict, how will they approach this person to try to, maybe it's not resolved completely, but to have a better communication and approaching maybe someone who they have a lot of conflict with? Yeah, great question. Well, the first thing is not to approach them. The, the first thing is to do your inner work and really look at the kinds of things we've been talking about. Okay, why am I getting so upset at this person? Is it really about them? or it's about experiences I've had in the past. What are they doing? And what's the story that I'm telling myself about what they're doing and what their motives are um, and uh, what they are wanting to have happen? And when you kind of look at that, you can see some of the ways that we're thinking things that aren't true or that may not be true. Um, and I, so I do a lot of that work with people first of, you know, what are you feeling? Okay, let it out, vent it. Um, why are you thinking that? How might the other person see that? What do they think's going on? And so I do a lot of work individually with people. Then often what happens is their hearts have opened already before they even talk to the person and they can listen. I teach listening a lot. You mentioned listening as well. Um, to listen with curiosity instead of trying to pounce on what they say. <laughs> and um, when I do that, when I do it with both people and bring them together, or even with just one, you know, conflict coaching, I sometimes say is conflict resolution for one, <laughs> yeah. uh, like T for one. Um, it changes the tone of the conversation so much. And then if you listen to people and my, one of the things I say a lot is my, my students and clients say, well, why should I listen to them? You know, they're the ones who run my mind. So I always tell them, if you're taking a class with me or getting coaching with me, you already know more about this than they do. And mm. with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. So you have to step up and do more initially, but you'll get the reward. Yeah. And so when people do that, it's absolutely amazing. The miracles I get to witness are so cool. I'll give you an example if you like. Yeah. Um, I got hired by someone who owned um, a small, a smallish business. He wanted to sell the business to two 
of his top workers and they were interested in buying it. And the two of them had this huge blow up and weren't even speaking to each other. And he hired me as like a last minute desperate effort to, to save the jobs of these 12 people yeah. and um, to have it go through. So the first thing I did was meet with them individually. And they each had some genuine grievances and things that were wrong and hurt places and wounds and anger and everything. And I deeply listened to them and empathized and about how hard that was because it was, they were both wonderful people and it was, they were missing each other. So then I ever so gently, I call it ever so gently kicking their butts (laughs) that I said, well, what if the story you're telling about this isn't true? What if, uh, you know, this might be, how would you feel about that? Or can you see where someone who wasn't like you might interpret this? You know, all those kinds of things, still inner work. And they would go, oh, wow, that never occurred to me. Yeah. And then with these people, then after we'd done, I think three sessions with each of them separately, I brought them together and they started being able to talk to each other. And it was so beautiful. They signed the papers, the business sale went through um, and I'm still working with them, just doing tune-ups, but they're in bro love with each other. So so appreciative and respectful of each other. They hardly need me anymore, which is, which is wonderful, but you would never have predicted they would get there from how angry they were at first and how much they felt like the other was the enemy. Well, you know, to, uh, that's a wonderful story. I think also we just, we don't grow up learning about conflict resolution. <laughs> like our parents are not exactly teaching us this stuff. I mean, we, we feel like, I think as a society, we put all this in, like pressure, like, okay, your parents should teach you all this stuff. But what if your parents don't know it either? Oh. And that's the case with a majority of people in my experience that, and that I, my observation, it's just not being taught. Yes. So you just start doing stuff. You're so right. And this is something I teach my first workshop too. I put up uh, ABC blocks and I say, you know, none of, there's no, we, most of us don't learn this in our families. We don't, there's no graduation requirement from (laughs) high school in conflict management or most professional programs don't have it. And so we latch on to what our parents did or what our boss did. And um, I also, I talk about, um, uh, there's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So most of us just have these little (laughs) hammers and we're trying to deal with conflict with the hammers when we need a whole toolkit. You know, sometimes you need a hammer, sometimes you need a level or a screwdriver or pliers or, you know. And um, so my whole goal is to help people learn what they weren't taught um, and be able to, be different and have the skills it's they're not even soft skills although they're sometimes called that they're like essential essential exactly like we got to reframe that because think if like all children were at least given this opportunity in school growing up conflict resolution financial management all this stuff right yeah how to cook for yourself actually all these things you're gonna your country is going to be a better country when you're producing people who are more self-assured know how to handle personal situations going on in life more fiscally responsible this actually this makes so much sense but it's not being done 
It's just crazy. You know, it, it is in very limited ways. There's a program called School Ambassadors and some other programs yeah. that actually in different ways teach younger students conflict yeah. management and circles, you know, restorative yeah. justice circles. And I have worked with some people who have who have experienced this and they're so much more capable right. of resolving conflict than most of us. I just want so it would be great if this was a larger scale thing yes. because it fe- it's one of those things that seems so obvious, but like as a larger scale thing, we're just not doing it. You know, there's things like, you're like, well, this seems obvious, but then it's just, it's done in pockets, you know? Yes. And I wish that wasn't the case, but at least we got to start in some places, you know? I mean, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, but we do what we can. We do what we you can. Do your podcast and other projects right. and I do it with my work and my writing and you know we do we it, it does feel overwhelming but I I really believe that when we put our light in the world we don't know how much it ripples out and radiates and well said. we can only do our part man and that's a, you know what that's a great way to end it I mean what a great thing to say to end a podcast <laughs> Lorraine you're a wonderful person. You seem like you just shine. You have like a, you do have a light, your smile, your, your whole being. I feel it. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And I just want to put a plug in for my memoir. Do it. Angels and Earthworms, an unexpected journey to joy, love and miracles. And it's going to be out soon. And if you contact me, I can put you on the list to get, you know, notices about it. And, um, would love to come back sometime. Of course. How do people get in contact with you? What's the best way? Well, my website is conflictremedy.com. And that has my blog and my um, you know, ways to contact me. And I do have a, a landing page for my um, memoir, which is a little bit long. It's, but I'll just say it, HTTPS colon backslash backslash angels-earthworms.aweb. Uh, no dot yeah dot a web dot page there we go <laughs> awesome what a wonderful yeah. time to spend some time i mean this it's always a joy speaking to everybody i get to but uh this was a true pleasure thank you so much lorraine oh thank you darian what a wonderful time i had talking to you that's great we'll be in touch okay